Listener Production. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is a Lie. Your mum will chase you with a butcher's knife. I started making Rosie's chicken soup, patented, so hands off, not long after my dad died. It's a complex culinary masterpiece I developed for the nights when nobody would come home and I realised if I wanted dinner, I'd have to figure out this whole cooking thing for myself. In a trend that would follow me into adulthood, I kept things simple. The recipe is as follows. Boil water in saucepan. Put pasta into saucepan. Any pasta will do. I like spirals, but it's up to you. Put powdered chicken stock into water. No specific amount, but if the water gets gluggy, you've gone too far. Wait for pasta to cook. Pour entire contents of saucepan into bowl. Eat. It was basically my more sophisticated take on two-minute noodles, which, although lovely as a treat, I didn't think were a dignified enough choice for dinner. Oh, how times have changed. Rosie's chicken soup would be the start of my lifelong journey with preparing food, which now, along with adding water to things, also includes placing various products in the microwave. But back then, I was still just an eight-year-old cooking novice, waiting for an adult to come home and make me a goddamn steak. Mum had pretty much lost her mind after Dad died. Although, given we'd already been in and out of rehab numerous times, it could be argued that she was losing it well before he sat in that yellow chair and never woke up. Her bipolar was, at the very least, a rubber band that had been stretched to its limit for a while, and Dad dying was the thing that finally made it snap. Even though she had married Joe the Removalist, had a new baby, and we were all living in a fancy private rental in West Ride, Dad's death broke her. She started going to the fridge to fill up her glass from a chilled box of wine more and more often. Then the wine in the fridge must have run out because soon she started leaving the house to fill her glass. And she must have had trouble finding wine elsewhere because some nights she'd be out looking for so long that we'd wake up in the morning and she still wouldn't be home. Then the fights began. Fight after fight after fight after fight. She and Joe the Removalist would scream at each other for hours, each getting progressively drunker as time went on. It could be fascinating to watch, actually, as there really is nothing more bizarre than two inebriated people trying to have a coherent and measured argument, especially when they both refuse to put down their respective beverages. Drunk people arguing have no concept of proper debate etiquette, so things like voice volume and spatial awareness are never guaranteed. This can sometimes make things exciting, like when I was once on a train in my early 20s and two lesbian junkies were having an epic lover's quarrel in the seat behind me. From what I could gather, one of the ladies had found a series of messages on the other's phone, sexy messages, and this particular lady had not been the one to send those messages. So a very interesting debate about the rules of monogamy ensued in which much slurred speech and tears were thrown around the carriage. I thought about adjudicating, but for the most part, they seemed to be handling the discussion in a civilised, if not sleepy, manner. Then, in an instant, things turned physical. One second, I was listening to the cheetah explain that she had been drunk when she licked that bitch's cunt. And the next, there were two lesbian junkies wrestling on top of me, screaming about which cunts are allowed to be licked and which ones aren't when you're in a committed relationship. I think, only mine, you bitch, ended up being the general consensus. The fight eventually rolled off me and onto the opposite chair, but not before squashing the cake I had with me. We still ate it later, just sort of cutting around the bum imprints. And then things started to quieten down again. Voices were lowered. Tears were shed. 
Promises about cunt exclusivity were made. By the time I got off that train, I really felt like I'd been on an epic journey of romance with those ladies. Whether they were drunk or high, or both, I suspect both, they managed to cover more spectrums on the emotional scale in 20 minutes than I think the average uptight adult would reach in their entire lifetime. It was an impressive thing to behold. But when it's your parents, at least your mum and your stepdad, and it's been going on for months... It's not so much exciting as it is exasperating. Watching two people who are meant to be taking care of you trying to explain why they hate each other after having had 11 drinks each, well, it tends to make it difficult to concentrate on the TV. A few months after Dad died, it became obvious that things with Joe the Removalist were falling apart. I may not have hit double digits yet, but I had watched enough Ricky Lake to have a pretty good understanding of when a marriage was over. And this marriage, the one that had seen us escape Smurf Village and head to a fancy private rental, was teetering on the drunken edge. But what really clinched it, what really put an end to our brief happy family and launched the beginning of Rosie's Chicken Soup, was the night Mum got her hands on a butcher's knife. It was late. Taylor was just a year old, asleep in her room. Rhiannon and I, in the trusty bunk beds that frustratingly stopped me from masturbating at will, were meant to be asleep also, but the screaming had been going on for hours and it did not sound like there would be an end to it soon. On top of that, when Joe the Removalist reached a certain level of drunk, he would start to play old Elvis records at a ridiculous volume. So not only would you be trying to sleep through slurred drunken insults, you'd have to contend with the accompanying soundtrack of Love Me Tender. It's an odd audio combination and not one I would recommend right before bed. To Rhiannon and me, it was frustrating more than anything else. When you know exactly how a night is going to pan out, lots of fighting, one or both of them leaving, making ourselves breakfast in the morning, waiting for someone to come home, it gets to the point where you just want it to hurry up and happen already so you can get some sleep. We get it. He's an idiot and you regret ever marrying him. She's a whore and you wish you'd never met. Curse the El Rancho and its irresistible romantic lighting, etc., 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 As I lay on the top bunk, I imagined storming out to the living room and finishing the argument for them. Mum, I would say, Ninja Turtle pyjamas doing nothing to assert my authority. Joe thinks you're a whore and would like you to kindly get out of his face so he can listen to Elvis in peace. Joe, Mum hates you and wishes you were dead. She regrets the day she ever met you and thinks your Monsieur sandals are ugly. Are we in agreement? They would look at me, shocked, but no doubt impressed by my ability to break down all the problems in their marriage so accurately and succinctly. Good. Now kindly sign here so we can finalise this divorce and Rhiannon and Taylor and I can get some damn sleep. I would then march back to bed, legal documents in hand, I'm sure I would figure out what to do with them later, and leave Mum and Joe the Removalist embarrassed that they needed an eight-year-old girl to tell them what should have been glaringly obvious from the moment Elvis first started playing at full blast the marriage was over. But that night, I didn't have time to go ahead with my conflict resolution fantasy. Before I had begun to even contemplate whether I would actually do it, I heard Joe scream, a terrified scream. Then I heard mum laugh, and both of them started running towards our room. I hung my head over the side of the top bunk and looked down at Rhiannon. Something bad was about to happen. Joe crashed through the door of our room, turned the main light on and closed the door behind him. Then he put his body up against the door and started screaming at us. Move the bed, he was saying. Help me. Rhiannon and I stood in the middle of the room, unsure what the hell was going on. Just a minute earlier, we had been under the covers listening to the soothing sounds of a drunken argument by nightlight. Now we were standing in a starkly lit room being ordered to move a bunk bed that to us might as well have weighed 11 tonnes. Then the knife appeared under the door. Joe, 
Joe, come out, Joey baby, my mum chanted as she tried to stab at his feet with the knife. Rhiannon started screaming. Joe was screaming. He was trying to hold the door closed just as hard as mum was trying to force her way in. She kept stabbing at the door with the knife, laughing. The silver blade would disappear, then all of a sudden slip through a crack in the side. Move the bed to the door now! Joe was hysterical and he couldn't keep holding the door, not knowing where the knife would stick through next. But it was a giant fucking bunk bed. There's no way Rhiannon and I were going to be able to slide that thing across the room. I'd made it my life's mission to get out of PE by pretending I was seriously afraid of the risk of melanoma. There's no way I had the physical stamina required to move a bed. And Rhiannon, with her perfect, tiny, delicate little model body, was equally as inept. The only option was for us to go and get help. Rhiannon leapt into action. If I hadn't had her lead to follow, I would have just stood in the middle of the room, frozen and staring at the knife poking through the door until my mum knocked it down. But Rhiannon went into superhero mode. The window, she said, snapping me out of my trance and pulling me over to it. We need to climb out, jump onto the balcony and go next door for help. Our bedroom window was two stories high, with the balcony a couple of metres to the left and about a metre below. We would have to scale the side of the house, jump down onto the balcony and pray we didn't miss. Once there, it was connected to the driveway so we could safely escape and find someone to help Joe. I looked at Rhiannon, petrified, but the determination on her face told me this was no time to argue or to point out that she was a notoriously shitty climber. She went first. There were some bricks on the side of the house that stuck out a little further than the others and she used those to stand on. But there was nothing to hold on to, so she just clung to the blinds from the window as long as she could before letting go and hugging the side of the house as she made her way across to the balcony. She jumped and she made it, so I followed. Yes, I waited to see if she made it before I followed. It's called not being a dummy. Once free of the house, we climbed the fence into our neighbor's yard and bashed on the back door as hard as we could. And that's all I remember. After that, everything goes black and all I could see when I closed my eyes is the knife through the door. I woke up the next morning in my own bed. Rhiannon was asleep on the bunk beneath me. For a second I hoped I had dozed off while planning Mum and Joe's divorce and all of it had just been a nightmare. I wandered out into the living room hoping to see Mum feeding Taylor in her high chair and Joe watching TV, hoping my Mum would make me breakfast and give me a hug and ask me what I wanted to do that day. But they weren't there. The TV was on and Taylor was in her high chair, but she was being fed by a lady I didn't recognise. That didn't faze me so much. Growing up with parents who like to drink means you often wake up to random adults taking care of you. These people, family, friends, neighbours, would generally look at you with pity and then take you shopping and buy you something. So while your parents didn't come home and that was always slight cause for concern, any bad feelings were generally outweighed by your new Polly Pocket. The lady feeding Taylor that day said she was an old school friend of my mum's. Something happened last night, sweetie, and your mum and dad just need me to watch you for a while. He's not my dad, I said, looking in disgust at what she had chosen to give Taylor for breakfast. It was toast with Vegemite and mashed banana. I wasn't thrilled about having a baby in the house, but even I felt sorry for Taylor and the fact that she had zero autonomy over her body and was therefore being forced to eat the tragedy on the plate in front of her. Do you want me to make you some breakfast? The random asked, clearly misinterpreting the look on my face as some kind of desire. Um, no, I said, slowly backing out of the room. I almost considered that breakfast more of a crime than what had occurred the night before. The butcher's knife incident was, sadly, the end of our time in the fancy private rental. Oh, and also the end of mum's marriage to Joe the Removalist. 
Mum, Rhiannon, Taylor and I packed our things and moved back into a Hauso house, although we were in a regular neighbourhood this time rather than a Smurf village style ghetto, which meant we at least didn't have to worry about getting pregnant as soon as we hit puberty. This was when I developed Rosie's chicken soup, again, patented, so hands off. It was nice to have the constant fighting over, although I have to admit I did kind of miss the Elvis. But living alone with mum meant there was no longer a Joe buffer when she took off to find wine, so every time she left, we were definitely going to be fending for ourselves. One night, with Rhiannon at her friends and Taylor with relatives, it was just me and mum, which meant that within about 20 minutes, it was just me. I killed a few hours watching TV and then, realising dinner was on my shoulders, came up with the brilliant concept of Rosie's chicken soup. I burned half the pasta to the bottom of the saucepan, but managed to get a fairly enjoyable meal out of it nonetheless. A meal I continue to enjoy to this day, by the way. It was about 10pm that I started to get scared. I had seen Stephen King's It way too young, which basically guaranteed that any time I was alone, I became convinced that a devil clown was going to try and rip my limbs off and eat my heart. I started to panic when it didn't look like mum was coming home. With Rhiannon, I could handle it, but an entire night by myself? Forget it. I had to get out of there and save my limbs while I still had the chance. This was the era of home phones, and there was only one number I could remember, the number that had recently been mine, Joe the Removalist's house. Joe the Removalist continued to see us girls after he and mum divorced, so I assumed the knife incident had been forgiven. At least, my mum wasn't in prison, so I considered that a good sign. I knew Joe would probably be home, and he was a good man, so I knew that if I asked, he would come and save me. I was also sick of the crappy new Hauso house and missed the fancy private rental where I'd briefly felt like I was part of a proper family. I wanted to feel the feeling of being in that house again, so I called him. I should have known as soon as I heard Elvis blaring down the phone that he was drunk. Too drunk to drive, in fact, which meant he couldn't pick me up. But I was used to drunk adults. What I didn't want was to be attacked by a Stephen King character and spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. There must have been enough panic in my voice to tug at Joe's heartstrings because he sent a taxi to come and get me. I packed a little bag with my toothbrush and waited in the front yard. I had never been in a taxi by myself before and had no clue what it would entail, but I was determined to come across as a seasoned traveller. I was debating whether I should sit in the front or the back when the taxi pulled up. The driver seemed sus and rightfully so he was an eight-year-old alone standing in the front yard of a house that clearly had no one inside i was holding a little backpack and spent at least three minutes circling the car trying to decide which door to open eventually he got out and opened one of the back doors for me thank you sir i said in an accent that i hoped would convince him i was a royal who had somehow lost her private car and had taken a wrong turn I tried to act like it was the most natural thing in the world and that getting in taxis on my own at 11pm on Saturday night was totally something I did all the time. I told him the address, still in an accent that sat somewhere between British and delusional, and he started driving. When I arrived at Joe's place, things were not as I remembered them. He paid the taxi driver, swaying a little as he did so, and took me inside. The house was literally devoid of furniture, which, although ironic for a removalist, made sense, seeing as we had all the furniture at our new house. There wasn't even a TV, and since TV had been my best friend since I could remember, this made me nervous. I'd been hoping to find the warm family home that had, however briefly, made me feel safe. Instead, I was faced with a drunken removalist sitting on a milk crate in an empty living room, listening to Elvis records through his headphones. He made up some blankets for me on the floor of the bedroom I had shared with Rhiannon just a few months earlier, but it was empty now and dark. 
It was even scarier than when mum had been putting the knife through the door. I honestly don't know what I had been expecting. I think deep down I had hoped I would walk through the door and then back in time to when mum and Joe were newlyweds. We had a new baby and everyone was so excited to be living in a fancy private rental. I lay down on the floor of the room I had once hung posters in and cried as I tried to fall asleep. At some point in the night, I woke up and, confused and disoriented, decided to head to mum and Joe's room to see if they would let me sleep with them. Sometimes, if I was really scared or had a particularly bad nightmare in which it had eaten one of my legs, I would snuggle in between them early in the morning until it was time to get up. The house was pitch black, but I knew the way to their room. I ran my fingers along the wall as I felt my way down the hallway. I reached out to their doorknob and slowly turned it. It was best not to make any noise. You were guaranteed a snuggle if they woke up and you were already in bed. I opened the door and slowly started to walk across the bedroom. I couldn't see a damn thing with the lights off, but I knew it was only a few steps until I would reach the edge of their bed. I walked in the dark, arms outstretched, and when I felt certain I was close enough, I made a dive for the mattress. But I hit the floor hard. There was no mattress there because there was no bed there. In my sleepiness, I had forgotten that this wasn't my house anymore. It was just an empty house that my mum's ex-husband was living in until the lease ran out. I lay there on the floor in the dark, heartbroken. I had reached out for my mum and she wasn't there. All I wanted was to snuggle between them until it was time to get up and now I was lying on the floor of an empty room. I felt like a ghost in a house that didn't exist anymore. I stayed there till morning, not even close to falling back asleep. I didn't really know it then, but I was heartbroken because this was the first time in my life I really understood that you can never go home again. And I'd never really had a home to begin with, so what was the point of ever getting up off the floor? Joe, who had been sleeping on a single mattress in Taylor's old room, woke a little later and drove me home. Mum, feeling more responsible than usual, I guess, had come home during the night and panicked to find that I wasn't there. She was waiting for me in the front yard as I climbed out of Joe the removalist suit. She put her arm around me, but it didn't feel like what I had been looking for the night before. As we walked inside, she turned to me and asked, laughing, What the bloody hell were you trying to cook in that saucepan you left on the stove? Rosie's chicken soup, I said flatly, and followed her inside. That night was fucked up, Mum. That was bad. How do you remember it? I can't really remember it. At all? Oh, Oh, yeah, that part of it. I was mucking around. No, you weren't, yes, Mum. No, that no, I was. I was running the blade of the knife underneath the bottom of the door, and you were stabbing it through the sides. Well, I don't know. I can't remember doing that because you knew that people's hands were there. You were trying to stab his hands, no, Mum. Wasn't that was one wasn't. of the scariest I've ever been in my whole life? Mm-hmm. We thought you were going crazy with the knife. No, I was just trying to scare him. I mean, okay, how did it go from your perspective? You guys were drunk, obviously, fighting. Mm. What happened? Why did you start? What were you fighting about? Why did you start chasing I him? I can't even remember, to tell you the truth. I cannot remember. But we used to fight all the time. Yeah, I know you did. Were you, was but it? He, whatever he did, he made me bloody pissed off. But as if I'm going to stab someone. Jesus. <laughs> but how, how would God. we know that? We were in the room. He was holding the yeah. door shut and you were stabbing the knife yeah, through the door. Yeah, and why did he have to go in there? He, he could have 
gone into our room. He had to go into where you girls were. He did that deliberately. Are you really blaming him for what room he ran into? Oh, and Jesus, not he must have made me. For chasing no, him with the knife in the first me, place? He must have made me damn angry. <sighs> doing that. It was really scary. It felt like you were possessed. Well, maybe I was at the time. What, with alcohol? Oh, alcohol, rage. Were you still angry? Was it about the way he told you that Dad died? I'm still angry about that. I won't forgive him, ever. Never, ever, ever. But do you think maybe that was what you were arguing about? Yeah, yeah. And, like, I knew I was getting out of there. You know what I mean? And it was just a matter of time. And I had to tolerate him until then. So if he did anything to piss me off, watch out. Can I ask, like, why he ran into our room, yes, and shut the door and and was holding it shut? Yeah, well, he deliberately ran in there. He shouldn't have gone in there. Right, but he did. So did it not cross your mind, like, well, I should stop now then because this will be really scary to Rhiannon and Rosanna? I was so drunk and out of control that I didn't think of that. But nothing would have happened to you. But it was scary. Oh, I know. I can imagine it was scary if it, if it had have happened to me. And we had to jump out the window and it was out. like that house was high up, man. It was pretty high up. We had to scale the side of that house, mm. jump onto the balcony, and then we had to go find that lady who lived in the house in front of ours. Behind us. Well, Yeah, like you know what I mean. But that was at the front of the house. Yeah, we ran around the side. Yeah, because we didn't really know the neighbours. We only knew her, didn't we? Because mm. we used to play with her kid. Mm. Do you, like, feel bad? Yeah, I feel bad because you feel bad. That it scared us. Of course I do. You know Rhiannon has zero <laughs> memory of that <laughs> night? No wonder. <laughs> People tend to forget things that they're really upset about. I don't. I remember everything extremely vividly. I yeah, suppose but, that's my know, PTSD. We, I mean, things that you remember that didn't even happen. That's you? not true. I'm, I'm not saying that didn't happen because I vaguely remember it happening. But you weren't lifted in that house by yourself all the time. That's not true. I remember being left there a lot. What, Deniston? Yes. Well, I don't believe that that happened. But if you just said you that to, you, you were so drunk. in the morning. If you just said that you were so drunk, you can only vaguely remember time. chasing us with I wasn't a butcher's drunk knife. I was then how not. could you, how do you know you're not remembering other stuff? I was not drunk all the time. One off. That was a one off time. That wasn't one off, mum. We had just got back from you being in rehab, so it wasn't one off. What? Got back from Karalika? Yeah. No wonder I wanted to kill him. Mm. Why? Because, because of, like, all the circumstances building up to that. Like what? We've already discussed it here. What, you mean? I the, don't want to repeat because it. Because of the thing with Dad. Yes. Right, yeah. Yeah, I remember that night, the other night, not the knife night. What happened after that night, actually, while we're talking about it? Because we woke up in the morning and your friend was there. So, like, when did your friend come? I don't understand how that night ended up the way it did. No, I don't really remember that either because I remember her staying over, but I was there as well. Who called her? Must have been the well, neighbour. No, it was obviously me. How would the neighbour know her? I don't know, but we... I, I had obviously called her and asked her to come around. 
I remember her staying over one night with me in the bedroom. No, but in the morning you weren't there. She Only she was there was making Taylor at, that disgusting breakfast. It was probably at court. Already. I mean, the night after the, the knife thing, she was there. No, it was a, one of those domestic violence orders. Against you or against him? <laughs> against you. That you chased him with a knife? Yes, I did. It was against him. Why was it against him? Because he was always being threatening. That's why. Yeah. And it was not long after that that we got a new house house in Eastwood. Yeah, because we hadn't been gone long from um, the one at Macquarie Park. And I basically contacted um Department of Housing and told them what had happened. Because we hadn't been gone for long and I, I explained that about... My husband and how how things had panned out, and they gave me a place in Eastwood, which was lucky because it could have been anywhere. Yeah, they actually gave us it was somewhere close. that was right next to your school. Actually, you could walk there. That house, I remember you being gone a lot. Yeah, in the night times, I used to go out a lot. Yeah, and me and Rhiannon had to look after Taylor a lot, and. And then that one night, I don't know, I think Taylor was, I don't know where Taylor was. I assume she was like with her relatives or something. And Rhiannon went out with her friends because Rhiannon was cool and she just would go out with people all the time. But I was a loser and so I always stayed home. And that night I went to schools. I was really sad. I was so confused and disoriented when like, because he had no furniture left in the house. And I was so scared at the house in Eastwood and his was the only number I could remember. So I called him and I got the taxi there and I got there and he didn't even have beds. Like he literally just had like a milk crate and like his record player set up so he could listen to Elvis and like a fridge with beer. Yeah. It was horrible. Do you remember coming home that night and me not being there? No. Mm. Don't remember that. Where were you going? Out to drink. Right. With yeah. who? Just whoever. Yeah, because it was pretty bad then. Yeah. Was it dad? Yeah. That made it, because I remember, I do remember it getting worse, a lot, lot worse after dad died. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Basically, I mean, this is a long time ago, but basically I had made a pact in my mind to drink myself to death. But unfortunately, it took up till last year for me to realise I couldn't really do it. Well, I could have done it. You but almost it, did it. But it took me that many years. Mm. I thought, I'm going to, if you can't beat them, join them. So that's what I decided I'd do. And I did a damn good bloody job of it too, didn't I? Mm. So up until last year, I was still trying to do that. So you wanted to, what, be with dad after dad yeah. died? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really sad, mum. It makes me sad that, like, you were in such a bad place you know what I mean like it was hard for us and at the time you know we were kids and so I didn't understand it and I just felt like you were a crappy mum do you know what I mean like you were a good mum when you were sober but you wouldn't stop (coughs) drinking and so at the time I just felt like it was so unfair that I had this mum who I never knew if she was going to be the good sober mum or the like scary drunk mum but like now that I'm older it it's really heartbreaking to me that like, and I've had my own like mental health problems. 
it's really heartbreaking to me to think back and think like how much you were struggling mm. and that you had to do it when you had at the time three kids. Yeah, like what very, are you meant to hard. do? What are you meant to do when you have three kids like what? Rhiannon would have been like 10 or 11. So three kids under 11 and you just feel like you want to die. What are you meant to do? Well, I don't know. I think drinking sort of made me feel better. It made me feel numb. Mm. And, and I think that's why I did it for a long time. Because mm. the more you drink, the more you sort of forget. But then at the same time, I mean, alcohol makes you depressed. Yeah. So it would just... Oh. And like all the sad music I used to listen to. Oh, God, and, oh yes, I remember. God. The same songs you just put on bloody repeat. A few oh, years later, Jesus. you in your room drinking wine with Bittersweet Symphony <laughs> on full blast <laughs> over and over and over. Yeah. And that's how you know, like, oh, don't go into mum's room. Oh, God. No, you know, Rihanna did the right thing. She went and broke it. Yeah, so we wouldn't have to <laughs> listen to it anymore. <laughs> Literally had it all night long. Oh my god! She it, replaced it. She replaced it. Though. She got me another one. It was sad then at that <laughs> time at Eastwood because what I was dad had just died, so I was like eight, and Rhiannon was eleven, and Taylor was a baby. What was sad about that time was it was kind of this transition from you um, being a good mum like a lot of the time and the drinking just being this separate horrible part. But then after dad died, it was like it just transitioned into you drinking all the time. No, no. I it was felt still, like it. I was still doing all sorts of responsible things when I was at, at that house. Because before do, that, do, you like, used to come in. Taking lessons after school. Yeah, that's what I mean. Going before school and teaching the children who couldn't read properly. And you did like t-shirt painting course at Yeah, no, going to mass every, every morning for God's sake, you know. No, so, not mean, then you didn't anymore. Yes, I was. I was uh, going. Excuse me. If I was you going weren't to, with. There's no way you were going to mass anymore. Yes, I did. I went to mass from that house, Deniston. Yes. I mean Eastwood. I used to go there after I dropped you at school. Even after you'd broken up with. Yes. Why? I just did. It gave me some sort of comfort. Oh. Were you working then, or had you stopped working when you had the baby? When yeah, you had to I, I, I couldn't do it. Not I couldn't keep doing. You know, working. I was only doing nannying anyway, and it just was didn't fit in with um, a baby at all. When you had when I had Taylor, so yeah, I, I had to stop. Yeah, no, but I did all sorts of responsible things. I continued to do so, but then I'd just lose it, and I just I'd get a, I'd get a, a thought in my head about drinking, and I'd just drop absolutely everything, and that was it. That's all I could think about was drinking. Mm. But you know, back then I didn't drink. During the day, it was still an after, you know, a nighttime thing for me. Yeah, not for many years. It, it that's when it turned into something that I did, you know, during mm. the day. So, yeah, it's very crazy times. Very crazy. It was. I mean, that night with the butcher's knife. Um, I, said, I didn't mean to hurt anyone. In fact, in my mind now. <laughs> to me, I know it's terrible. It sounds terrible. To me, it's like, to me, it's humorous. I was trying to scare people, not, not you girls. I know, but 
Like the way I was calling it. I was trying to be a crazy That made person. it scarier, Mom. <laughs> That's why I did That it. made it scarier. I did it to scare him, not but you. But we were in the room. <clears throat> yeah. You should never you should never have gone there. But you can't just sure pass way. the blame like I'm that. I'm not. This is one of the few things in the book and, and nights or events from my childhood that, like, I still get annoyed about. That's all. Like, I've gotten to a place where I have so much empathy for how hard everything would have been for you. But then I think back to that night and, man, like, I, my post-traumatic stress disorder was really bad in my early 20s. And that night is one of the memories that vividly would flash across my mind all the time and was very distressing to me. The knife under the door and sliding through the sides of the door. Like, that had a really profound effect on my um, brain. And it took a lot of work for me to, like, not think about that all the time. Mm. That's all I'm saying. That's terrible. No, I know. I know. I had no idea. No, I know. And you were drunk. Like, you weren't. It's not like you, you were. Alcoholism is an illness. You know what I mean? Like, you were drunk. and But it just, it was shocking to me that Rhiannon has zero memory of that night whatsoever. And she was older than me. She was three years older than me. Well, I think it's because she's put it out of her mind. I think she, like, we literally (coughs) scaled the side of a two-story house and escaped out the window. And and she was like, no, I don't remember that at all. But she just doesn't remember. There's a lot of things that Rhiannon doesn't remember. She doesn't remember a lot. I feel like I remember everything. But then you say I remember it wrong. Mm. Did I get the timeline of that right? I don't know. I get really confused about the timeline then from Smurf Village to the house in Denison to Eastwood to when Dad died in the middle of it. See, I thought you were seven when your father died. No, I just turned eight. I'm sure that you were seven. Well, because my birthday's in May and he died in August. So I just turned eight. 1994. I was born in 1986. Oh, yeah, because Taylor would have been one. Yeah. And then, Rosie, there's your chicken soup. (laughs) <laughs> I've not, I've made up for it now. You have. Because now I make a homemade real chicken soup. Well, I wrote <laughs> I wrote about your soup now because I still she's, she's have still been making, making that, that soup. Crap. So I thought, I'm going to make a real soup. I don't know I what it is. Rubbish. It's, it's like comfort food <laughs> to me now. <laughs> it, like just chicken stock and water and pasta. Oh, yeah. And I know, and it's like every boyfriend I've had and every flatmate I've lived with has just looked at me like that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. But I don't care. I love yeah, it so much. It's it's and then like you, chicken noodles. I suppose. But then you saw it earlier this year and you started oh. making me proper soup, which is yeah. actually nice. Well, but to be so. honest, I know I don't – I love your chicken soup, but sometimes I do still just really feel like Rosie's chicken soup. Like, I don't know. It's just like – this one kind of recurrent comfort food from my childhood. Mm. That and ice cream and ice magic. Oh, God. Magic. (laughs) I thought you'd love the, um, oh, no, I think that came a bit later. Chico rolls. Oh, yeah, I loved Chico rolls too. Damn thing. You bought a deep fryer just so I could have them for afternoon tea. (laughs) Revolting. The unhealthiest thing. Yeah. to eat. That's right. It's seriously, yuck. I love Chico rolls. Oh, yum. I haven't had one of those in years. Mm. So, yeah, I do, you actually made chicken soup last night because I requested it. So, thanks. 
Mm. It is good. It is tasty. I still don't. I don't really want to know how you make it. I have no interest in cooking. It's easy. Just sort of chuck everything in a pot. No, I don't. I don't. I don't care. <laughs> well, it is. It's better to cook it for out like three hours, three and a half hours. Yeah, but you do it. I don't do it that way anymore. It's too, it takes too long. Well, it's nice to have someone else to do it because I certainly will never yeah, ever do it. I miss someone cooking for me. Oh, sorry, you live with the wrong person then. Yeah, no one in the family can really cook. Yes, they can. That will really offend Except Rhiannon and Taylor when I they did, hear oh, that. No, no, I didn't mean it like that. Rhiannon and Taylor <laughs> both cook, Mum. I'm the only one who doesn't cook. You're a bitch. <gasps> I'm going to tell them. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, they, they listen to the podcast. I'm demanding that we keep that we <laughs> keep that in. No, get rid Mom, of it. We're keeping that in. I'm t- I'm, make, I'm making eyes with the producer right now that we're keeping that in so you can get busted. <laughs> they just don't know the proper techniques. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to teach myself how to cook. Yeah, I remember when I was little, you used to make tuna mornay all the time. Oh, that's so revol- the only yeah, I've been thing I've been making that since I was twelve and a half. That was gross. Beats, um, Maybe that's why I was never interested in cooking macaroni. I don't think it does actually. I think Rosie's chicken soup is a culinary masterpiece. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for talking about this one, Mum. <laughs> In the next episode, I remember they took me into this room and they asked me heaps of questions about whether I knew the difference between the truth and a lie and stuff. And then they asked me heaps of specific questions like I had to draw an aerial view of what the house looked like and I had to draw the living room and I had to draw where he sat and where I was sitting. Mm. And then they had this doll and I had to, and you had, and they asked such embarrassing questions, like Dude, what room did he do this in, and what did he do when you were in the room, and were his hands on your bum or on your vagina, and how much were they on your vagina, and how much were like it went into so much detail. I was so embarrassed, mm, and I remember coming mm. out of the interview and seeing Rhiannon, and Rhiannon must have been asked all the same questions yeah. as me, and we just looked at each other like we never wanted to talk about it again. No. This is Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. Listener.